Next on Lectures in History, Johnson County Community College professor Ty Edwards teaches a class about the expansion of the United States during the Spanish-American War and the acquisition of Hawaii. She examines the goals of the U.S. in gaining new territory and the debates at the time about having an overseas empire. All right, today we are talking about U.S. empire abroad. And I'm going to start with the question like always, so let's start with the question. So the question for today is why did the U.S. become a global empire? Okay, why did the U.S. become a global empire? Okay, why did the U.S. become a global empire? Okay, why did the U.S. become a global empire? Okay, before we get too far, I want to start with the first slide here. Uh, this is a political cartoon from Puck Magazine in 1899, and because this text is super small, I typed it up for you here. So it says, school begins, Uncle Sam to his new class in civilization. Now children, you've got to learn these les lessons whether you want to or not. But just take a look at the class ahead of you, and remember that in a little while, you will feel as glad to be here as they are. All right, so it might be hard for you to see, but the students are labeled Cuba, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, and the Philippines. And then these are supposed to be students that are named for the states that were already part of the United States. And then if you look in the back, this is supposed to be an African-American student cleaning the windows, right? An indigenous student sort of sitting at the back of the class. And this is supposed to represent a Chinese student who's excluded from the classroom entirely. As you know, by this point, we're already into exclusion of Chinese immigration. So that's what that's referring to. So this is kind of summing up the stuff we're going to talk about in this class. So background. Let's do the definition of colonialism. So Mason, can you remind us what the definition of colonialism is we're using in this class? Colonialism is when a power exploits a lesser power and uses the lesser power's resources to strengthen and enrich the greater power. OK, good. So we all remember, right? And this is a class about empire. So nations that engage in colonialism are empires. And that's what we're talking about today. Then you know last class we also talked about progressivism, right? We talked generically about progressivism as a movement to solve problems. What I'm talking about today is happening simultaneous to this, okay? Simultaneous. To, so this is part of that progressive movement we were talking about. And you'll see some of the same people we talked about last class. So these are presidents we're going to mention in this class, and I just listed them out here so you can have them for easy reference. Remember Teddy Roosevelt, one of the progressive presidents we talked about last class. Okay, so let me give you some context. By the end of the 1800s, so the end of the 19th century, this is a period of significant imperial competition. All right, so empires competing with each other uh, to gain power, to gain more colonies, and then gain the resources and wealth that come from that. All right, so an era of competing empires. Okay, so empires are competing for power, more colonies, and for access to the resources and wealth that come from that. All right, now during most of that period, the United States was not a nation that had external colonies, right? However, has the United States been engaging in colonialism all this time? Right, so American colonialism has been focusing on indigenous people, And of course, if you want to go back to the 1840s, focusing on Mexico, et cetera. 
Okay, so Americans are colonizing throughout this period. They're just doing it on the North American continent. Okay, so on the North American continent. All right, so by the 1890s, this is a significant decade for what we're talking about today. By the 1890s, a couple of things. We talked about this last class. The growth of industrial capitalism had caused lots of problems. You remember progressives are trying to solve those problems. And we went over a whole list of them last class. You remember that. One of the other big things going on by the time we get into the 1890s is Americans are living in a very divided society. Okay, so they are divided still with sectional differences from the Civil War. There's political divides. There are class divides. There are racial and ethnic divides. It's a highly divided society. And you know those divides are causing problems. I'll get back to that in a second. Also, by the time we're into 1890, one famous historian proclaimed that the American frontier was closed. What he was referring to was indigenous land was, for the most part, by that time, colonized. You remember when we talked about the Dawes Act, allotment, boarding schools, etc. Okay, so by the time we're into the 1890s, there's not a lot of indigenous land left to colonize, right? So the question becomes, will Americans stop colonizing or will they colonize somewhere else? And that's what we're talking about today. Okay, another thing that's happened by the 1890s, American production, that's the greater than symbol, is greater than American consumption. Okay, American production is greater than consumption. So this means Americans have surplus goods. And that will in part contribute to the panic of 1893. So you remember panics are economic depressions. Right? This is the second big one I've talked about this semester. And so you should notice it's about 20 years since the last big one we talked about. Uh, so this is happening fairly frequently. Up till this time, this was the biggest economic depression in US history. So it was terrible. Okay? This is a really severe, last four years, severe economic depression. Okay, severe economic depression. That's a big problem, right? And I think I've told you in the past that it's not uncommon in American history that in the wake of panics, Americans often looked to colonialism as a way to open up new resources to stimulate the economy. Should we expect similar responses here? Yeah, okay. And then one other thing, you remember there was a class where we talked about what work and who was doing it were changing? This is particularly true for middle and upper class people, especially men. So increasingly, American men are doing office jobs, which doesn't sound all that bad. Many of you dream of having an office job. But for many people, masculinity had long been built in the United States on physical attributes, and on skill in war. And the last major war that Americans had engaged in was the Civil War, which was decades past by now. 
So this is not an overwhelmingly large group, but it's full of elites who are very loud. All right, so one example is Teddy Roosevelt, who talked about this at length. So one example, I put this quote on Canvas already for you. Uh, he said in a publication in 1897, there are, it is true, influences at work to shake the vitality, courage, and manliness of the race. If we lose our virile manly qualities and sink into a nation of mere hucksters, putting individual gain above national honor and subordinating everything to mere ease of life, then we shall indeed reach a condition worse than that of the ancient civilization in the years of their decay. So, uh, in other words, stakes are low, right? Civilizations decay. And in many ways, he will advocate very publicly that war is a way to restore these supposed valued characteristics of American men and to preserve the nation in the future. Okay, so he's going to be one of the people that's advocating that war might be great for the sake of war because of what it will do for men in military service. All right, so this list here, I have this bracket. These are some problems going on by the 1890s. All right, so what's the solution to them? Katie, can you read us a paragraph from page 92 in our Robertson reading? When Americans felt themselves or their beliefs threatened, they drew a line and dared their enemies to cross it. Children and adults drew lines on the ground on the ground or in their imaginations to separate themselves from danger. They gathered their friends behind the line. By definition, those on the other side of the frontier were enemies. They expected response to the drawing of a line was a, was a violent effort to cross it, and the line was a dare, a challenge which had to be accepted. The expected response of the to the violation of such frontier line was a violent defense. The American were not, was not fighting merely for a bound boundary or for a piece of territory, but for a primary distinction between Americans, between Americans and others. But what was at stake in the drawing of the lines and the establishment of frontiers was identity, personal, personal communal, and national. Inside the, that line, the Americans belonged, and in, everything inside the frontier belonged. Inside the line was the community of the American nation. Ah, you know how much I love this section of Robertson. All right, so Robertson talks about drawing lines. And in drawing lines, Americans reinforce their identity because they are behind the line and the enemy, the frontier, is on the other side, right? Well, we just said the frontier is closed, right? So where will these lines be drawn to bring people together? So there are some people who think that the biggest problem facing Americans in this period is a unified national identity. And some will argue that the way to bring Americans in a unified national identity is war with someone else. And in this period of imperial competition, wars were often in the effort to expand colonies. And that's what Americans are going to do. Okay, so. War for colonial expansion will unite Americans together in their effort to build that empire. But as you know, does colonialism always have a cascading series of problems that come with it? Yes, okay, which is what we're going to talk about today. Okay, so two other things I want to point out. So this idea that colonialism can create a unified nation is a solution to problems for some. So where will this colonial effort look to? Uh, it's going to be places that are tied to the United States by sugar. I've already put this slide on canvas. Uh, so the United States and sugar were intimately tied in this period. By 1900, US annual consumption was 2.66 million tons, five times the amount consumed in 1866. Raw sugar was 12% of all US imports. 
the single largest import in the US economy at the time. But, right, 12% isn't an overwhelming number, right? So sugar is a small part of the overall American economy, but as a single unit, it's the biggest. 19% of the sugar market was supplied by US producers. So this means most of the sugar that Americans are consuming is not made by Americans, right? So where's it coming from? It's coming from sugar islands. And this is, in this order, the sugar islands where Americans got most of their sugar in this period, okay? In this order. So these are the primary suppliers of US sugar. Cuba, in particular, supplied half of all US sugar at this time. In these islands, their economies are dominated by sugar exports, and those islands boomed and busted depending on frequently changing tariffs. So if tariffs were lowered, they could sell a bunch of sugar in the United States and then usually consume American goods. But if tariffs were high, they had trouble selling their goods in the United States, and that would be bad for their economies. Here's a really big point. I'm going to come back to this one again in a couple of minutes. Heightened tariffs in the US plunged an island into depression and often caused political unrest within it. Okay, I'm going to give you some examples of this in a second. OK, so sugar is going to be the big uh, sort of unifying commodity that's going to tie this colonial era together. Second, beginning in the 1880s, Congress started allocating money to rebuild the US Navy. This is going to be critical. You cannot have an empire in this period in world history and not have a powerful navy. So you could argue that Americans started laying the groundwork, Congress started laying the groundwork for a US empire in the 1880s when they started to rebuild their navy. Okay, this is going to be critical success. No powerful navy, no empire. And then real briefly, as we all know, how was colonialism justified? With the Not with that. The civilizing mission. Okay, so justified with the civilizing mission. So the people that are colonized are supposedly what? Lesser. Yeah, lesser, uncivilized, somehow lower in the hierarchy. And as you know, layered over that by this period is the racial hierarchy. And then also, some people were supposedly less fit to survive based on at the end of the Robertson reading, social Darwinism, good. Okay, social Darwinism. So you're going to see all of those same justifications used here. Okay, so here's my first example of this colonial period. We're going to start with Hawaii. If you haven't seen a map lately, it's still in the same spot. All right, it's about halfway between the Pacific coast of North America and uh, the Pacific coast of Asia. Hawaii, native Hawaiian were excellent farmers. Okay, Native Hawaiians were excellent farmers. They were highly productive farmers. So when colonizers arrive in Hawaii, starting in the 1770s, and when colonizers arrive in Hawaii in the 1770s, they're going to find very productive farmland okay, being farmed by the Native Hawaiians who live there. However, now, I have a slide. This slide is also on Canvas. We're going to go through the list, and I'll explain them as we go. OK, so another thing that happens, though, is when colonizers get there, they primarily are visiting Hawaii on larger trade routes. So you see people, predominantly Americans, coming from the Pacific Northwest, where they're engaging in fur and hide trade, traveling to China. And as they stop along that trade route, they often would stop in Hawaii. 
There's a place where they could get food, a place where they could resupply their ships. It's an extremely long journey. It's a rest on the way. So by the time we're into the early 1800s, Hawaii is a stop in trade networks. Hawaii was also an island rich in sandalwood, which was valuable in the Chinese trade at the time. So you'd have fur traders who would be bringing furs and hides, and they would also pick up sandalwood and then travel all the rest of the way to China. And then also by the time we're into the late 1800s, a super lucrative industry at the time was the whaling industry. And a lot of whaling goes on in the Pacific, and Hawaii was one of the places where they would stop and uh, resupply their ships, uh, rest, etc. So it's a big stop in whaling trade at the time. All right, by the time we're into the 1820s, this is when you see the arrival of US missionaries. So US missionaries are spreading across both America, North America, and other parts of the world at the time. And missionaries are coming to do this work, right? They're bringing the civilizing mission to the places that they visit. Uh, and missionaries, especially in this case, intended to stay. Okay, So they were coming to do this work long term. And with them will come other settlers, mostly Americans. And they are arriving because they know this is super productive agriculture land. Okay, they're arriving because this is super productive agricultural land. Uh, this is a story we could tell. We're telling it about Hawaii right now, but we could tell the same story about Kansas, right? You see missionaries arriving, then you see agriculturalists arriving. And this is an example of settler colonialism. Okay, what does settler colonialism need native people to do? Right, go away, right? So that the settlers can possess their territory. All right, now the interesting thing is, is that native Hawaiians were aware that this was probably what was happening. It was going on on Pacific Islands all across the region. Uh, and they were actually well studied in the systems of colonialism practiced by the British, the Americans, and the French at the time. So what you see happening is in the 80s and 1840s and 50s, the Hawaiians are reasonably fearing invasion. Other Pacific Islands are being invaded and colonized, and they feared the same for themselves. So they were trying to figure out ways that they could protect themselves. And one of the things they're being pressured to do by plantation owners and by missionaries was to divide up Hawaii into individually owned pieces of land. Okay? Because, of course, outsiders felt like that would be a way that they could buy land. Right? If you have individually owned property in Hawaii, then could wealthy foreigners buy some of that land? Theoretically, yes. Uh, the reason why the Native Hawaiians will adopt the system of private land ownership is they knew that in systems of colonialism, usually if the Native people had a system of private property before the colonization, they were often allowed to retain that private property after colonization. So if they adopt a system of private property, will foreigners be able to buy land? Yes. But will Native Hawaiians also be able to own land that they might be able to preserve long-term if they're ever permanently invaded. Yes, and this is what they do. So they implement systems of government and land reform. Uh, and they do this as a way to try to protect themselves long-term uh, in terms of land ownership. OK, so then what happens? US Civil War. Uh, during the US Civil War, there is increased global sugar production. You see sugar production in the United States disrupted. Uh, and as a result, Americans in Hawaii start producing a lot more sugar because there's this market that opens up during the American Civil War. So sugar production in Hawaii is dominated by US plantation owners. Okay, so American plantation owners that have moved to Hawaii to do this work. And this is when the Hawaiian economy will become increasingly dominated by sugar. The problem is, is selling Hawaiian sugar in the United States 
involves having to pay tariffs. And having to pay tariffs cuts into the profits that American plantation owners can make. So in 1875, there is a US commercial treaty between Hawaii and the United States so that Hawaiian sugar can come into the United States without tariffs. Okay, this is a big boost to profits. All right, this is a big boost to profits. And as a result, they expand production. Because they expand production so significantly, in the next decade, they will recruit almost 60,000 Japanese and Chinese laborers to come work in the Hawaiian islands on sugar plantations. And it is then that Hawaiians become outnumbered in their homeland. Okay, so they are now outnumbered by foreigners in Hawaii. About a decade later, when this treaty is renewed, the US requires a naval base in Hawaii, Pearl Harbor, in Honolulu. And remember, this coincides with the period when the United States is rebuilding their navy. All right, and so you can see rebuilding the navy is going along with having access to ports in foreign places, and Hawaii will be one of them. All right, and then a couple of things happened in the 1890s. In 1890, Congress increased tariffs on Hawaiian sugar. This is bad for Americans in Hawaii making sugar. And so what you see happening is a major disruption to their economy, 1892-93, Americans, with US military support from Pearl Harbor, overthrew the Hawaiian government, the native Hawaiian leader at the time. And the president at the time, President Harrison, supported uh, adding Hawaii as territory in the United States. However, Congress doesn't get it done before he leaves office. The next president opposes it, and Hawaiians vocally opposed it. However, they opposed it peacefully. They knew that if they used violence to prevent an American invasion, if an American invasion took place, they would then be deemed enemies and they wouldn't be allowed to keep their property. Okay, so not only would people die, but their access to property would be undermined. So they do not violently resist. And then in 1898, President McKinley will support and Congress will annex Hawaii as a part of the United States in July. I'm gonna expand on why in July of 1898 will Americans do this. Uh, a couple of things to note, I put this in quotes. Annex is almost always the word that you hear people use to describe how Hawaii became part of the United States. Annexed generically means acquired without war. Okay, and annex generically means acquired without war. Would native Hawaiians agree that this was a peaceful transition? No, right? They would certainly view it as hostile and aggressive. So annex is a word that comes from the colonizer's point of view, not the colonized people's point of view. And in a second, I'll explain what's going on in July 1898 to motivate adding Hawaii in a second. Okay, so Hawaii. Hawaii went from being a trade colony to a settler colony, and that settler colony will become part of the settler's empire, the United States. That's how it worked in Kansas. That's how it worked in Hawaii. Same process. Okay? All right, so what's going on in 1898 that makes Hawaii part of the United States officially? All right, what's going on there? This is the slide I already showed you. Remember this US and sugar slide I showed you? I just want to remind you that last point. Heightened tariffs in the US plunged an island into depression and often caused political unrest. In Hawaii, the political unrest was among American plantation owners. Sometimes the political unrest will be from a different population, and that's what we'll see in Cuba. All right, if you haven't looked at a map lately, here's Cuba. Here's Florida. Here's Cuba. 
Cuba had been part of the Spanish Empire basically since Columbus had arrived, so for quite some time by this point. Uh, we've already talked about Cuba is predominantly in sugar. It's also in tobacco production. It is a huge sugar producer at the time. However, sugar prices in the world are declining in the late 1800s. So that is bad for Cubans, okay? Sugar prices are declining by the late 1800s. And everything gets worse in 1894 when the United States raises tariffs on Cuban sugar. In 1894, the United States Congress raises tariffs on Cuban sugar. So that means they'll be able to sell less sugar in the United States. Is everybody with me here? Yes, Rebecca, etc. Yeah, good. Okay. 1894 tariff raises prices on Cuban sugar. All right, and the response was Cuban resistance to Spanish colonization. That starts in 1895. Uh, Cuban people had been trying to declare themselves independent from the Spanish for decades by this point. Okay, for decades. There have been efforts by Cuban people to declare their independence from their colonizer. Uh, in 1895, the economic situation is pretty desperate. And therefore, the Spanish actually use increasingly brutal tactics. So the Spanish use concentration camps for Cuban resistors. And as you know, what usually happens to people in concentration camps? Yeah, they die. So that's what's happening here. Some estimates say tens of thousands. Some estimates say hundreds of thousands of Cubans died in these camps. Okay, so it's very deadly. This is also widely reported in US newspapers at the time. So Americans were well aware of this. And Americans actually identified with this because to many Americans, this sounded a lot like US independence, right? Americans rising up against the British to declare their independence. So to a lot of Americans, this was a sympathetic cause. And its brutality made it, in many ways, more sympathetic. Okay, so a lot of Americans were well-versed in this. At the same time, there are US sugar companies that are also invested in sugar production in Cuba. Okay, so it's not that just Americans consume sugar. It's that US companies are actually producing sugar. US companies are producing sugar in Cuba as well. Okay, so far with me? Okay, so then 1898, we have a series of events. In January, okay, who's the president in 1898? It's William McKinley, right, William McKinley. In January 1898, he sends one of those new naval ships, the USS Maine, to park in the Havana Harbor in Cuba. Publicly, he claims the purpose is to protect U.S. investments. Okay, so the, a U.S. naval ship is parked in the Havana Harbor in January 1898 to protect U.S. investments. People claim that secretly McKinley hoped he could just keep the Spanish from getting into Cuba and it might allow the Cuban freedom effort to actually be successful, that they might be able to independently uh, defeat the Spanish on their own. But bad news, in February, the USS Maine blows up. I hate it when this happens. Okay, so uh, over 200 Americans die when the ship blows up. It's very deadly. It's very unexpected and awful. All right, so who, who did it? 
American newspapers say it must be the Spanish. Have you ever gotten really excited right after an economic depression when no one was buying your newspapers to suddenly have breaking news where people will definitely buy your newspapers and it's really fun to talk about? I mean, we don't know it's the Spanish, but it sounds like it might be the Spanish. Yeah, right? Today, what do we call that? We would call that fake news. In this era, they called it yellow journalism. I'd be just really excited. It had to be the Spanish, right? I mean, who else was it? We know now that there was actually a boiler fire in the USS Maine, so no one did it. But as a result of that and the inflammatory journalism about Spain at the time, there are many calls in the United States that Americans have to retaliate and help defend the Cubans from their oppressive empire. And so that's why in April, Congress declares war. Okay, in April 1898, Congress declares war against the Spanish. Okay, so let's remember, war is always expensive and has unintended consequences. Okay, here we go. All right, so in April, Congress declares war. Now, as you know, the U.S. has a pretty powerful Navy by this time, and it's a good thing. They wouldn't have won this war without it. However, the U.S. Army is not nearly as well prepared. Okay? It has not been reformed in the way that the Navy has. So the U.S. Army, you may also know, was segregated in this period. So you'll have famous people in service, like Teddy Roosevelt. You remember the video we saw on Monday where it showed Teddy Roosevelt riding on horseback and you were led to believe that it was filmed during the Spanish-American War? Well, technology at the time didn't allow for it to be filmed without like, the photographer being shot. So all of the film you see of the Spanish-American War are all reenactments that happened in New Jersey after the war was over. So guess who they don't invite to the reenactments? The African-American soldiers serving in segregated units. Many of the most important victories in the Spanish-American War were to the credit of segregated units who usually had to do the most difficult fighting and do it first. And then groups like Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders, et cetera, who will get famous and eventually access the presidency as a result are the ones who get a lot of the fame and glory. Okay, so keep this in your mind as we talk about the military over the next few weeks. Okay, so war is declared in April. Remember I said with Hawaii, something happens in July. Okay, so by the summer of 1898, the United States is at war with the Spanish Empire in multiple colonies around the world, including the Philippines. All right, if you're going from the west coast of the United States to get to the Philippines, somewhere you could stop on the way is Hawaii. And that's why in July you see Congress and the President being motivated to officially make Hawaii part of the United States. Okay, so Hawaii's official incorporation into the United States is also in the context of this war. And this war, by the way, is called the Spanish-American War. Okay, Spanish-American War. All right, by the end of that summer, most of the fighting has ended, and in October to December, there is negotiations between the Spanish and the Americans to end the conflict. And what ends the conflict is known as the Treaty of Paris. It's complete in December of 1898, and the Senate will approve it in February of 1899. Okay, so the Treaty of Paris ends the war between the Spanish and the United States. Okay, now in theory, Americans joined this war to protect their investments in Cuba and to help the Cubans achieve independence, right? Americans did it to protect sugar investments and to help Cuba become independent. Are we with me there? Okay, in December, 
when the agreement of the Treaty of Paris is made public, what we find out is that the United States also agreed to pay Spain $20 million to get the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Guam as colonies. Okay, $20 million. Okay, $20 million to get the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Guam as colonies of the United States. So is it a war for freedom or a war for empire? Does it depend on who we're talking about? Hold on. You might need to put an asterisk next to Cuba. Hold on. All right. At the time, some Americans called this war the splendid little war. How offensive. Okay. Uh, it's short. Americans did win. But thousands of people died. In the Spanish-American War, most uh, sources claim that only about 400 American deaths were combat deaths, but almost 4,000 American died, Americans died mostly from disease. And African-American soldier deaths were at higher rates than their white counterparts. Okay, so there certainly was death. And then, of course, many Cubans and Spanish, over 60,000, it's believed, were died in this conflict as well. Okay, so it is certainly deadly. All right, remember when I said uh, unintended consequences? All right, so the Philippines. Oh, I forgot this is a great picture. Another purpose of the war, right? Remember colonialism. Where it here it is. Colonialism, one of the goals of having a colonial empire was to unite people at home. So one of the official propaganda photos that the federal government released during the war was the picture of a Union and a Confederate veteran from the Civil War who both were serving in the Spanish-American War. And they're supposed to be symbolically shown here liberating this uh, blonde girl is supposed to represent Cuba, and these two veterans of the Civil War are breaking her bonds of slavery to Spain. So for many Americans, the Spanish-American War is also about this bringing Americans together, right, to liberate a supposedly oppressed people. All right, but while Americans are at war with Spain and Cuba, they also send the U.S. Navy to the Philippines. The Philippines had also been a Spanish colony for quite some time by this point, since the 1500s. Uh, and in the Philippines, also a sugar-producing colony, people in the Philippines had also been trying to resist and overthrow their Spanish colonizer for decades. So you see similar things going on in the Philippines that you see going on in Cuba. When Americans arrive in 1898 as part of the war, they appear to be allies. Okay, so they appear to be allies of Philippine independence. Okay, when Americans arrived during the Spanish-American War, they appear to be allies of Philippine independence. So in other words, are they helping the Philippines like they're helping Cuba? That's what the local people thought. They thought that until they found out about Treaty of Paris, right? Where, of course, the Philippines actually has now become a colony of the United States, which is why then from 1899 to 1902, the Philippine resistance now transitions to fighting the Americans. So here you have what we call guerrilla warfare on the part of the Philippine resistance. 
They're a much smaller force, but are they local? All right. And they, in many ways, fight the US in ways that we're also going to study when we study the Vietnam War. A lot about the Philippine War is very similar to the Vietnam War decades later. Okay? So in other words, in guerrilla warfare, I wrote here, not splendid. This is going to be an understatement. Uh, whereas the, Philipp the war in Cuba went on for only a series of months, the war in the Philippines goes on for years. It is very difficult to defeat the Philippine resistance. Uh, and therefore, Americans will increasingly use tactics that are a problem. So during the Philippine War, Americans will use something they called the water cure. Today, you'd call it waterboarding, to torture Philippine people to find out who the enemies were. It also was very difficult to tell who the enemy was, because they didn't march around in nice lines and in their uniforms. So people that lived in a local village could be the people you were fighting yesterday or the people you're going to be fighting tomorrow. And so what you see is increasingly Americans using what were called scorched earth tactics to burn down whole villages to try to root out any potential enemies that might be in them. Again, there's a lot of overlap here. Another thing that goes on here is many of the US soldiers that are fighting in the Philippines signed up in the context of Cuba. And so many of the soldiers in the Philippines are writing home to their families saying, I don't understand what I'm doing here. I thought I was trying to help people like the Cubans be independent. The Philippines seems to be the same situation. Uh, there's even soldiers from Kansas in particular that write about how Americans are reversing history and turning themselves into the British Empire by suppressing freedom movements that seemed a lot like American freedom movements in centuries past. So this is extremely difficult on US soldiers and very deadly for them. Uh, by 1902, though, they have finally ended the Philippine Rebellion, and it will go on to be a colony of the United States for decades after that. All right, let me give you some numbers here. So in this war, over 4,000 Americans will die. Most of them will also be from disease. And some estimates have over 200,000 Philippine people dying, uh, most of them civilians, because of the tactics that were used to try to find enemy forces. So. It's longer and it's deadlier. You need that again? Yeah, some estimates say up to 200,000 if we're counting civilians. It's very deadly, in other words. Uh, after this war ends is when the civilizing mission will start. And that's when American missionaries will arrive. There'll be efforts to use English and teach American cultural values in the Philippines. OK, the problem with this is many Americans will publicly say at the time what soldiers in the Philippines said. Can you have a Republican democracy that is also an empire? At the time, I put this quote on canvas for you already, Theodore Roosevelt said in a speech he gave in Chicago in 1899, the Philippines offer yet a graver problem. Their population includes native Christians, warlike Muslims, and wild pagans. Many of their people are utterly unfit for self-government and show no signs of becoming fit. Others may in time become fit, but at present can only take part in self-government under a wise supervision, at once firm and beneficent. We have driven Spanish tyranny from the islands. If we now let it be replaced by savage anarchy, our work has been for harm and not for good. That is a classic justification of colonialism. We have to stay because the people we're colonizing are too stupid to do it themselves. Right? That's the argument, all right, is that the Philippines are not civilized enough to govern so Americans can govern. Uh, however, this is also a big part of the 1900 presidential election. 
William Jennings Bryan, who had been the populist Democratic presidential candidate and talked a lot about imperialism in that election, loses, right? McKinley is reelected, and as you know, he dies, and then TR becomes president. Uh, but in a speech after the election, William Jennings Bryan said, imperialism is the policy of an empire. And an empire is a nation composed of different races living under varying forms of government. A republic cannot be an empire, for a republic rests upon the theory that the government derived the powers from the consent of the governed, and colonialism violates this theory. We do not want the Filipinos for citizens. They cannot, without danger to us, share in the government of our nation. And moreover, we cannot afford to add another race question to the race questions which we already have. Neither can we hold the Filipinos as subjects, even if we could benefit them by so doing. Our experiment in colonialism has been unfortunate. Instead of profit, it has brought loss. Instead of strength, it has brought weakness. Instead of glory, it has brought humiliation. But of course, Americans don't vote for him, right? They vote for McKinley, right? And the colonies and the empire remains. So the question is, can you have a Republican democracy and have colonies? The Constitution does not include a description of how you treat people in foreign colonies. So in a series of Supreme Court cases, known as the Insular Cases, from 1901 to 1905, the Supreme Court laid out the status of people living in these new foreign colonies. Basically, what those Supreme Court cases said is you can either live in an incorporated or an unincorporated territory. In an unincorporated territory, you are not a citizen of the United States. Okay, so in the insular cases, US Supreme Court cases from 1901 to 1905, they determined that there are two kinds of foreign places, incorporated territories and unincorporated territories. If you live in an unincorporated territory, you're considered not a citizen of the United States. So the Constitution doesn't apply to you. All right, so let's see what happened to each of these colonies long-term. I've also put this slide on Canvas. So long-term results for the colonies. All right, Hawaii. As you know, Hawaii has a large planter missionary population, right? We already talked about that. That's a classic example of settler colonialism, just like in Kansas. Did Kansas become a state in the United States? Yes, because those Americans that lived there wanted those political rights. Same thing happens to Hawaii. So Hawaii is a territory and then a state in the United States by 1959. So Hawaii, of the list we have today, was the only one that was considered an incorporated territory. Okay, they were an incorporated territory in 1900. And so that is the only one of the list we have today that becomes a state. All right, then the Philippines. Uh, the interesting thing about the Philippines, the United States, you know, with Cuba, was super tied up with it, right? Americans consumed a lot of sugar, and there was a lot of U.S. investment there. Americans had consumed Philippine sugar for quite some time, but there were almost no Americans and almost no American investment in the Philippines at the time that the United States acquired it in the Treaty of Paris. But in the Treaty of Paris negotiations, American diplomats felt like they had the option to get the Philippines. The Philippines had 7 million people in it at the time. Thousands of islands spread over over a thousand miles, all right? It is a large colony. And it was a colony that was highly desired by other powers. So Americans felt like we got it, so we should keep it, especially to keep it from other empires. Two empires at the time that were interested in that colony, Germany and Japan. Eventually, the Philippines, after World War II, will gain independence from the United States. That's in 1946. Notably, 1946 is when these two empires 
are no longer a threat. And I will say, in World War II, the Philippines suffered lots of invasion by the Japanese and lots of brutal violence. So this freedom comes at a moment after a lot of suffering in the Philippines as being part of the US empire because of that rivalry. All right, Cuba. While Americans are at war in the Philippines, right, which you know goes on for years, uh, the question is what to do with Cuba. Cuba makes much more sense as an American colony at the time, right, than the Philippines does. So the US military does not evacuate Cuba after the Spanish-American War until they agree to add the Platt Amendment to their new Cuban constitution. The Platt Amendment is approved by the US Congress and then added to the Cuban constitution in 1901. All right, so let me give you a list of what it has in it. Uh, the Platt Amendment says that the United States can intervene in Cuban affairs, especially politics and presidential elections. Okay, Platt Amendment. The U.S. can intervene in Cuban affairs, especially politics and elections. The U.S. can have permanent military bases in Cuba, the most famous of which is Guantanamo Bay. And do Americans retain that base to the present? Yes, they do. All right? So the United States can interfere in politics. They have a military base. And Cuba can make no other similar treaties or negotiations like this with a for another foreign power. Okay, so the US can interfere in their politics, the US can have a military base, and Cuba can't make this kind of arrangement with any other nation. So is Cuba independent? What would the Cubans say? No. Is it a colony? Is it an unofficial colony, right? At the time, Americans called it a protectorate. You know you're really uh, splitting hairs when you're coming up with new names for your colonialism, okay? So it was functioning like a colony, and we're gonna talk about this as we go through the rest of the semester. Then Puerto Rico. Some people call Puerto Rico the world's oldest colony because it's been controlled by foreign colonizers since Columbus arrived in 1493, okay, 1493. Uh, is Puerto Rico still part of the United States to the present? Yes. Hmm. Hmm. And then others, Guam and Samoa, also acquired during this period, were also considered <laughs> unincorporated, and they were primarily uh, important at the time for their uh, naval bases, okay, for the deep water ports they had now, because do the U does the U.S. have big colonies like Hawaii and the Philippines in the Pacific region, and those are there. All right, so let me answer the question from the beginning. All right, it's kind of a long answer, so write it down. Okay, so the question is, why did the U.S. become a global empire? Okay, why did the U.S. become a global empire? First, the U.S. has always been an empire. The U.S. was an experienced colonizer. Okay, the U.S. has always been an empire. The U.S. was an experienced colonizer. Okay, the U.S. was an experienced colonizer. The difference here is these colonies are off the North American continent. Okay, so the U.S. has always been a colonial empire. The difference here is these colonies are off the North American continent. Just like in the past, Americans colonized to solve problems. Okay, Americans colonized to solve problems. Okay, Americans colonized to solve problems. They thought colonization would create unity. 
Okay, Americans colonized to solve problems. They thought colonization would create unity. They thought it would improve US international prominence. Okay, they thought it would improve US international prominence by making it now one of these competing empires. And it created economic opportunities for some, especially people in sugar. Okay, it created economic opportunities for some, especially people in sugar. And it was justified in the same ways it had been in decades prior. Okay, justified in the same way it had been in decades prior. So back to this question here. Is a Republican democracy compatible with empire? Theoretically, no, but practically, yes. All right, so contradiction. One of the things we will talk about in the class, and you might write about on the exam, contradiction. Right, this is a contradiction, having an empire and being a Republican democracy. Contradiction is going to be an unintended consequence of this empire, okay? All right, thank you. And we will read about Puerto Rico uh, for next week. So you will learn a lot more about Puerto Rico and how this experience goes for them next week. That's what your quiz will be about. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. and midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3.